It's practically hard getting up out of that soft chair. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 in just a little bit. Before we get there, I'm going to do a little bit of an extended introduction uh, regarding, uh, I want you to think about things that you consider valuable, kind of make a mental list. What is really valuable in my life? Now, you're sitting in a church gathering, so it would be easy and hopefully true as well to say, well, God is most important, uh, maybe family, uh, close friends, uh, maybe my own personal welfare, uh, maybe my Bible uh, is, is really special and uh, valuable to me, things like that. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Before we do that, I googled what is valuable to people, and I didn't really, I don't know if there were years to choose from, but a Gallup poll popped up, it was early on in the feed, it happened to be from 2002, I kind of, that's a little bit, 21 years ago, I kind of doubt that it's really changed much, and I didn't try to find something later, so according to Gallup's poll in 2002, uh, what's important to you, it went like this. Number one, what can you, just a minute, you don't have to shout it out, I probably wouldn't hear it anyway, but if you think what's most important to people, number one on the list was family. That's number one. Number two on the list, if you kind of try to track along, see if you can, how many you can get right, there's nine things. Number two on the list after family is health. Number three on the list, work, which I assume I'm not sure what that means exactly, but it was number three. Like, does that mean they, they want meaningful work, I assume, uh, productive work, work that provides for their means. Number four on the list was friends. Number five on the list is money. Number six on the list, religion, faith, religion. And then the last three I just kind of grouped together. The last three, according to this Gallup poll, were leisure time, hobbies, and community activities. I think that probably is a pretty fair list as to what, if you were to take a poll, uh, go down someplace where there's lots of people and ask them, you probably would come up with a list very similar to what Gallup discovered in 2002. But what people say and the way they actually live isn't always the same. So this is only in my own mind how I think people actually tend to live is different from what they say, and this is largely based on my own life because I look at the way I can live based upon what I say. It would look something a little bit more like this. What people demonstrate to be most important. Number one on the list, I really don't think is family. Now, maybe if you're you, it is, and you're just a better person than I am. But it seems to me that a lot of my life is focused on myself. That's kind of number one on the list. Uh, it shouldn't be, and I think there's times it's not. I think we can all be uh, defer to other people, be self-sacrificing on, on some level or at different times, but, but by, by our sin nature means we're, we're kind of selfish people. Like, we just tend to think of how does it affect me? What does that mean to me? We look out after ourselves pretty good. The Bible never commands you to love yourself. Uh, psychology is all about you gotta you gotta learn to love yourself before you love other people. The Bible assumes no, we love ourselves. That that part's actually pretty easy. Uh, 
what we're commanded is to think outside of ourselves. So after number one on the list, they are in no particular order. Because everything, everything kind of flows from this sin problem that I have. It would be things like life is important, money's important, freedom is important. That is, I get to determine what I do, where I go. I want my freedoms. Appearance is important. Praise is important. That is, recognition, affirmation, achievements are important, relationships are important, and religion. And Religion being last, I've got the guy juggling, because at any given point, religion could be right under self. I mean, maybe it's a really high priority. I mean, you've prioritized it right now. You're gathering with the church, so you've prioritized this on some level. Ideally, you're doing it not because you find it like, what am I going to get out of the service? It's all about me. Uh, Really, that you're here gathering because you want to give praise to glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. You're here to give glory to Him because He, it's all about Him, not me, not us. So all those other things we're juggling, but all those things, I think, we demonstrate those things are important to us. When somebody seems like they're going to take away one of our freedoms, we're, we, we're pretty quick to call foul, to say, you can't do that. Uh, we object, we fight, we push against. That's what people demonstrate as important. But let's take another turn. Let's say we did a Bible study as to what's important according to the Bible. What would it look like? Now, I didn't really do a Bible study. I'm just kind of working off some general principles. Because if, if we actually did a Bible study on this, I think we could do this for months we could define certain characteristics and virtues and values as important and spend a whole week on it, and I don't want to do that. So if we do a Bible study, and I reduce it down, because in some ways I think you really can reduce it down to what's really important, what's the essence of what is important, it boils down to two things, right? Number one, love God. Number two, love other people. <coughs> Excuse me. Those two things were commanded. Out of those two things, then if I list some additional things, it would look something along these lines. The Bible says wisdom is important. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. Could somebody grab me a cup of water? <coughs> I think I'm losing it. <clears throat> I keep forgetting to have a cup of water here. I always have an emergency water back at our own building, but I don't have one here yet. Jonathan's not wearing shoes, and <clears throat> the aroma <laughs> is getting to me. <sighs> but wisdom is really important. Love God, love other people, and you need wisdom to do both those things, right? So I'd say wisdom in the Bible, you're going to find that is a, is a very important attribute all through Scripture, especially in Proverbs. You're going to you're going to see the call to wisdom and the value of wisdom. More valuable than rubies and gold. The things that I chase after, the things that you probably chase after. The things that it's easy to think, dude, that is so important. And I'm going to work hard to get that. Because if I get that, it's going to mean I can exchange that gold, that money for these other things. And the Bible's like, that doesn't even compare to wisdom. And I... And honestly, like a lot of times, I feel like I'm not really working that hard to get wisdom. 
That's a really high value in Scripture. Secondly, I would say godliness and holiness. I mean, that's what Ephesians 4 to 6 is about. You're a Christian. If you, if you are a Christian, saved by grace, then you're called to godliness and holiness. That's really important. That should be valuable. I want to be godly. I've said before, I really admire John MacArthur in that he says what he's looking forward to most when he goes to heaven is no longer sinning. You know, he, he has a desire for godliness and holiness. And in spite of the fact that he's tracked with God for an awful long time, he knows he still falls short. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Hopefully I won't spill it. Secondly, or the third thing on this, the white list, is goodness, righteousness, and truth. I could ask you why I picked those three. And if you're sharp, you would say, well, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We just learned that the fruit of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. So those are all really valuable things. Now what we're going to find out in Ephesians chapter 5 is time is really valuable. And back when I started this whole long introduction, when I started that and I had you make a mental list, don't raise your hands, but I wonder how many people said time is really one of my highest values. And it ought to be. Because people can take away a lot. You could lose your job. You could lose, somebody could rob your house. They could rob you. Uh, your, the stock market could crash. You could lose all your investments. All those, all those things could be taken away. But if God is merciful, you could rebuild them and you get another job. Or you could earn more money or, or build up a bank account again. All the, you could replace those things. But once you've lost time, you'll never recover it. Nobody's ever recovered a moment in time. I don't think. I'm trying to think in the Bible, was there ever a miracle where somebody did? I don't think so. Who? Well, he was granted extra time, but he didn't recover any past time. He was granted an extra 15 years. So that time is extremely valuable, and, and Paul in Ephesians is going to talk about how valuable time, in fact, is. So in Ephesians chapter 5... Verses 15 and 16, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Ephesians 5. If you're using a pew Bible, I can't really help you. I'm not sure what page it's on. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version here in just a moment. In Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 15 and 16 are probably about as far as we're going to get this morning. They read this way. Look carefully then, your Bible may use the word therefore, it's the idea of drawing upon ground we've already covered and moving forward. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. There's obviously some important words on that screen that we've looked at in Ephesians already. Ephesians has a, had a lot to say about how you walk. Uh, I like that the English Standard Version uses the word walk as opposed to live. Although it is talking about the way you live. But a walk is so suggestive. Step by step. Little bit at a time. Moving one direction. It is how you live. But it's just described as a walk, to walk in love, 
to walk in light. And now we have to walk as wise. To walk as wise. Making the best use of time. Because the days are evil. To bring a little bit of context into this, uh, Ephesians is all about joining together the concept of doctrine with application. Doctrine and application. The doctrine are, are these propositional truths, things that God does. He doesn't need your approval. Uh, he just accomplishes things because he's God. And salvation is a work of God. You were saved by grace when we were dead, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. So that's the doctrine. And then the application part is, but now you need to do something. You need to live a certain way because of what God has done. The doctrine is in the first three chapters. The application is in the second three chapters. And they go together. But the doctrine always has to come before the application. If I give you an example of that, chapter 4 and verse 1 reads this way. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The calling to which you've been called was in the first three chapters. Now you're to walk worthy of that calling in the next three chapters. They go together. They necessarily go together. If I were to look at chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We're not imitators of God to become beloved children. We become beloved children simply because we cry out to God for mercy in Christ. God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I've got, I've got sin and guilt I don't know what to do with. If it will ever be taken away, it's because of who Christ is and what he's done. And so if you've never done that, that that's the verse for you. That you would call out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then when God in his grace forgives you in Christ, you're his child. And so chapter 5 and verse 1 comes into play. Therefore, be imitators of God. You're his beloved child. If you're his child, you should imitate God. You should be like God. Not to be the child, but because you are the child. Now, you may like the doctrine part or the application part better than one better than the other, but they necessarily go together. They're not at odds with one another. They always go together. Necessarily, they always go together. Larry and Bev Smith are probably, I think, our church's oldest missionaries. I don't know when the church first took them on. It was before I ever came to the church and I've been at the church pushing 29 years. Uh, Larry's 85. He lives in Ohio. He's retired from being a missionary, but he's still a missionary. Like, he's still very active in ministry and opportunities. And he sent out a letter just recently. Uh, it's in August, so this month. And he, d he doesn't send out many letters anymore. But it was a fascinating letter where he merges doctrine and application. I'm going to read to you the first uh, couple paragraphs. He writes, Lord willing, on August 23rd, so that's just a few days ago, on August 23rd, Bev and I will celebrate our 65th wedding anniversary. 58 of those years have been spent as career missionaries to Latin America with ABWE, which is Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. We have served in several countries, but one is especially relevant for this letter, 
ABWE asked us to go to Canada in 1992 to set up the missions program at the Baptist Bible College and Seminary in London, Ontario, Canada. I really wasn't interested in doing so as I wanted to stay in Latin America. But we moved to Canada in 1992. Little did I realize that this move would have a profound influence on the rest of our lives. In 1993, I learned that a church leader from Cuba, Brother Norberto, was in Canada visiting some churches. I talked with the person hosting him and asked if our Cuban brother could come to our college and seminary to speak since I was the mission's director. He agreed on the condition that I would translate for him, to which I gladly agreed. I translated for this brother the entire day. His testimony impacted all of us. Bev and I invited him to our home for a meal and spent several hours listening to him tell of the persecution he had experienced in the early days of the revolution in Cuba. He told of the churches and seminary building being burned and some of the suffering he experienced while in prison for his faith. And then he invited me to go to Cuba and teach in their seminary. I replied that after listening to his story, I had nothing to offer the Cuban brethren. I will never forget his reply. He said, Brother Larry, you come to Cuba and teach our people theology, and we will teach you how to live. And that is what happened. From that day until just prior to the COVID epidemic, Bev and I made several trips to teach in their seminary and preach in the churches in Cuba And they tried to teach me how to live. What a story. That's a great story because it doesn't downplay doctrine. It doesn't downplay theology. But it also doesn't downplay the practical aspects of how do you put it into practice. Because on some level, it's a lot easier to know the right answer than to walk the right answer. And Larry Smith nailed that, I thought, quite well. So this... uh, Idea of doctrine and application. In chapter 5 and verse 14, uh, we spent some time on that last week and the time I was here before that. In chapter 5 and verse 14, it's an alarm call where Paul says, therefore it says, uh, whatever he exactly is quoting, but the quote is, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up. Wake up to this this marriage, this relationship between what you know and how you should live. Wake up to that. Don't fall asleep. Engage with that. And so in in Ephesians, there's this contrast all the time as to how we live. Don't do this. Instead, do that. Don't tell lies. Tell the truth. Don't steal. Work hard. Labor hard. Honest work and learn to share. Don't tear down and belittle and envy and, and, and curse. Rather, let your speech be seasoned by grace. And say those things that only build up. And on and on it goes in Ephesians, this contrast where he's waking the church up to putting into practice what they say they know to be true. I think I have on the screen, if we put Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, by grace you're saved through faith, faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. That's doctrine. 
The application is, verse 10, for we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus unto good works. Your good works are not what makes you a Christian. Don't, don't think you're going to stand before one God someday and say, I was a pretty good person. I mean, dude, they had church on Sunday evening and I actually went. You know, God's not impressed by that stuff. God only recognizes if you are in Christ, if your faith is in Christ. But if it is in Christ, good works ought to follow. Your life ought to be different. It ought to be changed. And Paul is sounding this alarm that Christians need to behave and live a certain way. So let's uh, add verses 17 to 21 to the verses I've already read. There's too many verses to put on the screen, so just follow along in your own Bible. For context, I'm going to go all the way back to verse 15. It reads this way. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul keeps hammering away as to how you should live. Not this, but this. And there's three of them in this passage. Number one, he talks about don't walk as unwise, but walk as wise. In verse 17, it's don't be foolish. Instead, understand what the will of the Lord is. And then in verse 18, it's do not get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And the being filled with the Spirit is explained in what follows Most immediately, it's singing to one another with psalms, hymns, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's giving thanks, and it's submitting to one another. All those things are are involved in being filled with the Spirit. Now, let uh, let me give you what Alexander McLaren says. I forgot to write the dates of... Oh, no, I didn't. It's 1826 to 1910. So, uh, a good long while ago. Alexander McLaren said this about how you should walk as wise, or how you should walk in the light. It's a terrific quote. He says, We shall never walk as the children of light unless we have the habit of referring everything, trifles and great things, to his arbitrariment. Arbitrariment? He's ruler over it. And seeking in them all to do what is pleasing in his sight. The smallest deed may be brought under the operation of the largest principles. That is, gravitational pull influences the grain of sand as well as the planets and the sun. What he's suggesting, not really suggesting, what he's asserting is that if we're going to walk in the light and if we're going to walk as wise, it's not just some... Big things that have to fall under his lordship. He's saying everything's got to fall under his lordship. The smallest aspect of your life has to fall under his lordship. I so am convinced, I became convinced of this years ago in some other book we were doing in the Bible, that the Christian life is not rightly ordered by tears. God is number one. Family is number two. 
Friends are number three. Churches, it's not, it's not this order where as long as God is on top, you can do whatever you want with the things underneath it. The better idea is God is the hub of a wheel. And every spoke that goes out, whatever, whatever it's going out to, falls under his lordship. When I ride a bicycle, when I eat a meal, when I get up in the morning, when I go to bed at night, who I spend time with, the words that I say. Every aspect of life has as its hub Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what Alexander McLaren is saying. It's not just the big things. It's everything has to fall under his lordship. And so, you know, talking with um, Rick Steele uh, last night, you know, the idea here is not just that I have to work harder. The idea here is God help me, give me a desire to want to see Christ at the center of everything that I do. It's Christ's grace, Christ's power I want him to so consume me that I don't have interests that are exclusive to myself. My interests are Christ's interests. And he's Lord over them. And it should be evident in my life. I will never achieve that wholly. But that ought to be my prayer. That ought to be my prayer. And I ought to see the direction I'm going that I see Christ more and more becoming precious to me, that take away what you will, but don't take away my Savior. Because at the end of the day, that's what lasts for eternity. Let's keep going. Paul says, look carefully. The old King James or the new King James uses the word circumspectly. To walk circumspectly. It's actually a better word. Most other Bibles don't say that because we're not really sure what circumspectly is. Or we have an idea and it may be right or it may be wrong. Circumspectly in my dictionary is defined as careful to consider all circumstances and consequences. It's not just, it's not just looking carefully. It's careful to consider all circumstances and consequences. That's why I don't play chess. Because chess, if you're going to win at chess, you have to carefully consider all the possible moves somebody else is going to make if you make the move that you think you could make. And I don't like spending that much time to think about a game. And so I'm going to make a move, and I didn't consider all the possibilities, and I'm going to probably lose at chess. In fact, I lose at a lot of games like that. Because I, don't, I just... It's just hard. And that's what Paul's calling us to do. To look circumspectly. This is, this is a, a very diligent, intentional exercise. And it is kind of work. It is kind of work. The word is only used like seven or eight times in the New Testament. But it's really interesting. Maybe nine. I, I forget now. Seven, eight, nine. It's not a word used often. But three of those times occur all in the same chapter. So it gives you a really good idea what it looks like. And the place... Oh, there's my chess game. I forgot to show you the picture. Why I don't play chess. But the three times it occurs is in Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 to 16. And it's in regard to King Herod. Because some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem looking for him who has been born king of the Jews. And in that chapter it says... 
Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He circumspectly inquired of them. He wanted to know every detail as to when you saw the star, how you came, what you're expecting to find. Don't hold anything back. I want to know it all. And they told him what they could. The wise men went to Bethlehem. And they were given the orders to report back to Herod. But they didn't. Because they were warned in a dream not to report back to Herod. Because Herod didn't want to worship the Christ child. He wanted to kill the Christ child. So after they don't report back to Herod, it says... Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained, same word, from the wise men. He'd figured it all out. He knew all the possibilities, except he never imagined that the wise men would be warmed in a dream not to go back the same way that they came. They hadn't figured that out. But for everything he knew, he was going to destroy that child, and he didn't. But that's how we are to live our lives. We are to look circumspectly. Our lives as Christians are to be intentional, and they're to be proactive. We're not to be just winging it and responding to what comes into our life. We are to go out with purpose and direction and engage whatever situation we're in, because we're Christians. If we don't have the answer, who does? If we don't have the light, who does? We live in a world plunged in darkness. And I'll tell you, I spend way too much time waiting for somebody to ask me the right question. And I think the Bible's as much about suggesting answers even when people aren't... I think sometimes the world doesn't even know the question to ask. But I think they're lost and I think they're hurting. I think some aren't the least bit interested in what the Bible has to say. But I think some might be, and if I were to throw a seed out, by God's grace, there might be a response. So, initially, when Paul talks about how we are to live wisely, it's not just react rightly to your circumstances, but move forward intentionally, proactively, as a Christian, you've been given a charge. You've been given a mission. By the way, this fits extremely well with what the men are going to discuss at breakfast. Women still aren't invited, but the men are going to discuss this from chapter 3, I think is the first chapter where we're in, where he compares Christianity to God like a, like a, a bird, a mother bird, that is pushing her baby birds out of the nest. And the baby birds think for all the world they will die if they get pushed out of the nest. But the mother bird knows you were created for this. I'm going to push you out of the nest and you will fly. Don't tell me your story about the one little baby bird that didn't fly and the cat got it. For the most part, the mother bird pushes the baby birds out of the nest and they fly. And we're like, God, I can't go out there. I'm a Christian. I'm so safe here. I'm hunkered down. I will wait until Christ comes back to get me. And God's like, but you were made for this. You were made to go out into the world and be the light and fly and he will push. And if you get pushed out of the nest, 
you will find it more fulfilling. The most, some of the most fulfilling discussions I've ever had is when I've taken a risk and I've had a spiritual conversation with somebody because that's what I've been created to do. And not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've been given a charge. Get pushed out of the nest. What a great chapter, Eugene Peterson. All right, let's keep going. So look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, that second verse, verse 16, if I take out the definite article, the, it still makes sense. Verse 16 now reads, make the best use of time because the days are evil. Make the best use of time. And that, that's a biblical truth. Make good use of your time. We've all got the same amount. Tomorrow we're going to get 24 hours. The day after that we get 24 hours. In September we're going to get 30 days. We're going to get 365 days a year and a quarter. So that every four years you get thrown in an extra day. We all get the same amount. Make the best use of time. And there's truth in that. But it's very interesting. Paul didn't write, make the best use of time. He said, the time. There's a definite article. It's very suggestive, and it's not by accident. In the New Testament, there are two main words translated time. The first word is chronos. We get chronology from that word. We get some other words from that, but they're not coming to mind. Chronology comes from that. Chronos is a word that means it emphasizes the succession of moments, days, months, years. You can't live in two years at the same time. You can't live in two days at the same time. You can't live in, you know, one follows the other. It's all in succession, in very neat order, very predictable. Every second follows the last second. Every minute follows the last minute. That's the first word for time. That's not the word used here. The word that's used here is a word called kairos. And, and these words have overlap. I, I don't want to mislead you. Uh, it's not a really strict, tight division, but there is a different emphasis that's very clear in Scripture, and all the uh, lexicons support this, so I'm not speaking out of turn. I'm not speaking like I'm a language expert. I'm not. But the second word, kairos, what it emphasizes is the significance and or the potential or the properties of any given moment. So it's not emphasizing the succession of moments, the succession of days. It's emphasizing the importance of that period. So that I, I've got some examples written down here if I can find them. Things like if I were to say, it's time for me to make a change. It's just time for me to make a change. I'm not saying, well, what time is it? Like, what time did you decide you need to make a change? I'm not talking about chronology. I'm talking about the, the potential of making a change for this period of time. This, this adjustment I need to make in my life. I could say something like, uh, I remember the first time I read my Bible cover to cover. And you were like, oh, what, what time was it? I'm like, well, I, don't, I, don't, I couldn't tell you the year. I don't know what year it was, but I remember the time I did it. I remember the significance of that moment. I remember Ryan was just a, a child. My oldest son was a child. And he decided, we decided together we would read through the Bible in a year. Uh, I, and that kind of kept me accountable. It wasn't that long ago, really. I mean, it was, it was when I came to fellowship, so probably in the 
late 1990s. So for some of you, it's like, I wasn't even born yet. Well, it wasn't that long ago, really. But in the late 1990s, Ryan and I decided we would read through the Bible together, and it kept me on track, and I did it. That's hard to do. I don't read through the Bible in a year usually. It usually takes me two years now because uh, I'm working through a new Bible kind of stuff. But at any rate, whatever your plan is, you should have a plan. But I remember the first time I did it, uh, and I was really glad that I'd done it. I could say things like, I played, well, Jordan plays Pickleball too, wherever she is. Oh, she's back there. All right, I remember uh, Dale and I were playing, Dale and I are pretty much the same skill level, and one of the last games we played last week, we played against a couple of players that are 4.0, so decidedly better than us. And I could tell Dale, I, do you remember the time we came that close to winning? That close. I don't, I don't mean the... As, as time goes on, I don't mean, I'm not going to be like, well, what I mean is that August, you know, what was the date and where were we playing? But I remember the incident, the importance of the moment. I mean, we were up 11 to 10. Or we were up, yeah, 11 to 10 and we lost 11 to 13. But we, we almost won. We came that close, which is pretty good. I mean, it was a win for us because we were expected to lose. One last one I could say is something like, uh, you, you might say, or I might say to you, or you might say to me, look, it's time for you to forgive that person. It's just time to stop holding a grudge. And if I say it's time to forgive that person, you're like, oh, well, I didn't know. What time was it? Oh, it's, it's 5.30. Aren't we supposed to be done? It's not that kind of time. It's, it's, the, it's the significance of the moment, the opportunity. You have an opportunity to extend forgiveness. To stop holding a grudge. You have an opportunity to speak goodness and grace to somebody else. It's not the time on the clock. It's the opportunity you have as God weaves people in and out of your life. That's the time that is used in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. In other words, the reason why you should take this wonderful opportunity... To walk as a wise person is because we got so many fools walking in the world. People don't know their right hand from their left hand. They don't know a man from a woman. They don't know purity from impurity. They don't know goodness and grace from that which is shameful and ought not even to be spoken of. That's the kind of world we live in. And so Paul says, look, make the best use of this opportunity to show them what it means to have fellowship with the living God in whose image we were created. And how we can be fully and forever set free from our sin and our guilt because of faith in Christ. If we don't demonstrate that, who will demonstrate that? That's a wise walk. That's a wise walk. This is a pastor from, uh, from Shady Grove Baptist Church in Boonville, North Carolina. His name is Chris Benfield. He wrote in... Uh, in one of his works that I have, a rather convicting thought. I found it convicting. He wrote, I am convinced that we are notorious procrastinators. We are well aware that the gospel needs to be shared. We are well aware that there are countless lost souls around us every day who stand in need of salvation. We are well aware that there are only 24 hours in any given day and that we need to be about the Lord's work. And yet, even knowing all of that, we still choose to put things off. Oh, we intend to do it. Just not right now. Just not today. And Paul's saying, walk as wise. 
because the days are evil. We've got the word the world needs. And it's because of that, Paul's imploring us to walk as wise. New King James says, redeeming the time, uh, which is the idea of of making a purchase. Uh, You've got, you start off tomorrow with 24 hours in your back pocket. How are you going to redeem that 24 hours? What are you going to spend it on? It could be spent wisely. It could be spent foolishly. When I was growing up as a kid, when I was like Nora's age, uh, and I got a little bit of money, whether it was some allowance money or whether it was wherever it was from, I was wanting so quick to go down to Kresge down at Fairview Plaza or Ben Franklin at Colonial Mall, someplace to spend that money. I just wanted to spend that money. If I had a little bit of money. And my dad would say, don't let that money burn a hole in your pocket. Well, I don't know what that meant. I just knew I wanted to spend my money. And, and so we've been given an allotment of time. Don't just see how quickly you can spend it without giving it any thought. Spend it carefully. Spend it wisely. Invest it in such a way that it reflects the wisdom that God has given us in Christ and the wisdom that is found in Scripture. Spend your time wisely. Comments and questions. And I've got a microphone if somebody wants to use it. So everybody can hear you. Who's got a question? Jonathan, take this out to somebody. It's not my microphone. I'm not throwing it. Anyone? Comment or question? Yes, they're in the back. So everybody can hear you, including me. I don't know that I understand the full uh, measure of what it means the days are evil. I've seen that a lot of times before, and I, I, I don't think I grasp the entirety of that. Um, well, I mean, that could be answered a lot of ways, right? I mean, we live in a fallen world, so in some sense the days are always evil. Uh, but I think Paul means something a little more particular and peculiar here. He's writing to the church initially at Ephesus. And Ephesus has a temple dedicated to the goddess Diana. And it is, so, it is a very immoral, pagan worship. Uh, there was a lot of witchcraft and uh, magic in Ephesus. You can read about that in Acts when Paul goes to Ephesus. So there's a lot of immorality associated with Ephesus in particular and that part of the Roman world as well. And some of the, in fact... I mean, in Ephesians, he's given us lots of examples, right? Like, uh, I'm using a Bible that I don't normally use in a pulpit. Uh, where was it when he says... Uh, he talks several times about how you don't walk how you used to walk. Where's, where's that other one? Is it in four? Oh, no, that's not it. Um, oh, there. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So, here's the evil, the days are evil. Uh, They walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, But that is not the way you learn Christ. So, I mean, in our culture, we could look at some of those same things. And, I mean, you don't have to watch much news or see much, you know. 
If you pay attention to what's happening socially, it's, it's uh, certainly not in conformity with what God created in the beginning. And that's part of the evil of our age. The mic's coming, Terry. Give it to him. There you go. Let him have it. And everybody can hear you. This is great. Some translations use the word wicked instead of evil. Still the same concept. Um, sometimes people might see the two words differently. But show to me the word wicked really shows how bad stuff is going on. That we think is just everyday normal stuff. But it's wicked. Yeah. Compared to what? God would have as his best for us. Yeah. Somebody since, else? Since I've got it, is there an element to where evil is simply just against us? Like, there's us, we have a set amount of time, so there's, you know, make the best use of the moments you have because basically the deck sort of stacked against you. You don't have unlimited time, you've only got a set amount. Um, that's true. I'm not sure I like the, the relationship in the verse, the way, the way the verse reads. I think it's not so much because the days are against you. I mean, our time does run short. That would be chronology. That would be the word, you know, we only have so much chronology, and eventually that runs out. But this is more a word that's emphasizing the, the potential moment you have to be what Christ has created you to be. So I think it has more to do with the days are evil in which you live, you live in a darkened age. You used to be without God. Used to be without hope. Strangers to the covenant. Alienated from the promise. That used to be you. But you've been brought out of that. Now walk as a wise person because the days are evil. Because the time in which you live is evil. They need what you found by God's grace. Share it. Somebody else? Okay. Next, we got somebody? Yep. Oh, okay. Would that time that's mentioned also be used during Esther for such a time? That's very interesting. Now that would be it couldn't be the same word because that's Hebrew. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the choice of are we talking Chronos uh, or Kairos? It would be a Hebrew word. And I can't tell you what it is, but it's the same concept for sure, right? Right. You know, where Mordecai says it may be perhaps God has raised you up for such a time as this. And he's, he's not so much talking about the chronology of the moment, but the opportunity of the moment. Right. That is a great example, and thank you. Yes, and then also, um, I also have a Bible that translates Greek and um, Hebrew, and then it's for that part, um, for the... Evil. Uh-huh. Um, it, it said for... Oh, where did it go? Um, used of times particularly full of sorrow and affliction, evil and calamitous, huh. is what it said. Yeah, interesting. Good. Anybody else? Last call? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for the promises of your word. They, they don't fail, and they never change. I thank you that we're saved by the...